Welcome to What the Heck with Lizzie Beck. I am your host, Lizzie Beck. Today's guest is joining me via Zoom from Brooklyn, New York. She is a Brooklyn-born and reared millennial who is passionate about practical education and connecting people with resources. She works full-time at the State University of New York as an admissions recruiter, part-time as an adjunct professor of theology at Concordia, New York, and part-time as deaconess of St. Peter's Lutheran Church, Brooklyn. Her favorite food is rice, and she will fight you about why New York pizza is better than all other pizzas, and I will not argue with her there. She is my very good friend, Janine Bowling. Janine, welcome to the show. Thank you for that warm welcome, Lizzie. I'm happy to be on the show. <laughs> I am so excited to have you on right now. How you doing? I'm, I'm okay, you know. Just trying to, you know, just uh, decide what to be patient about. So that's pretty much how my week is. Uh, the weeks have gone since yeah. every. I've, yeah. as you know, I've managed my time on social media as best as I could. I always struggle between calling people on their stuff or not. Mm. Um, so that's like a one for me. Um, but you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all still in the quarantine era. <laughs> like yeah. I would say. Yeah, we're in phase one. I don't know what you guys are in California, but we're in phase one. So, I mean, it's not like you can just go out and do whatever you want. So there is that social connection that does still happen on social media, which I think is one of the good things about social media. Yeah. So it's hard because, um, you know, ever since the George Floyd killing, it's become the Trader Joe's group or uh, I like this podcast and I joined their group on Facebook and now there's a racial conversation there or... Mm that I'm a part of because I like poetry. There's racial conversations in every single comment section that you go to. And uh, I always struggle between, do I just have reality as it is? Or do I want to do that thing that's so prevalent in our culture with, um, especially with millennials, you know, I'll call us out. And it's it's like, you can filter everything. You can filter Mm. it to like, okay, I never want to see what this person says again. I never want to see what this person says again. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like, like full disclosure, like that's the advice I've gotten from like my mental health counselor. And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't think that's healthy either. I don't yeah. think that that these people don't exist is uh, good, but it might be good for a time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, never- think, I think you're right. I think there is some good to it in the sense that because social media, I think, connects you with so many people you wouldn't otherwise see in real life. Sometimes it is important to kind of minimize who you are interacting with. Because yeah. otherwise it can get exhausting and you can't, especially if these are people that you may not necessarily have close ties with, sometimes even trying to have a conversation with them isn't really going to make any difference because they're just like, I don't even know who you are. Like, why would I listen to you? You know what I mean? But no, yeah. that's, that's interesting. We are in an interesting time. How are things in New York? Things in New York are interesting. It's phase one, but we've all been sick of the COVID lockdown for a long time. So I think it's a very eager phase one when, from what I've heard from my friends in other states. Um, but, you know, we're trucking through. 
there's different demonstrations every night, pretty much in the streets. I've been very fortunate to have the Citizen app. So um, for anybody who uses the Citizen app, it tells you everything that's going on within like a, like pretty much like a five mile radius of where you are. So that's pretty cool. It helps with crime. It was originally there for crime, but now it's tracking all the different protests. So that's interesting too. And yeah, so, so that's how things have been going on the outside of my world. On the inside, it's pretty much the same with work. And I'm just trying to get stuff out there so that the summer can be better than the spring was really. (laughs) Janine, as a, as a black female leader in the church, I wanted to bring you on the show to hear your perspective on everything that's happening right now in the country, as well as your experience with racism and systemic racism. So it's going to be real. I I want you to know that I'm here to listen. I I hope everyone here is listening. And basically the platform is yours, but I'm going to ask you some questions. If there's anything you don't feel comfortable answering, just let me know. We can edit anything out that we would like. Um, But first, honestly, the first thing I like to do is I want you to tell my listeners, how do we know each other? How did we meet? We met at St. Peter's, which is where where I serve as a part-time deaconess. So a deaconess is a position in the Lutheran Church, especially for women. Um, I went to school for five years, including an internship to be a deaconess, and um, that's where we met. So Lizzie was one of the few um, <laughs> Lizzie was one of the few white people at St. Peter's. <laughs> it's always fun because um, we have a pastor who's been there for a really long time. He's great. He's such a great connector in the community, and has done a lot for East Brooklyn. But he's also white and also from Wisconsin. So there's this constant confusion. Now, if Lizzie and her sister were related to him. Nope. Yep. We are not related at all. <laughs> so it was just very funny. And uh, that's where we met. Um, we, we got closer through, I think, basketball. So I was helping out with the junior boys, the basketball team, driving around and being a cheerleader and helping the church to connect to how that was part of our ministry. So, yeah. Yes. Fun times at St. Peter's. Um, (laughs) So we're going to talk a little bit about St. Peter's a little bit later. But first, one thing that I really want to hear from you, I know, I I think everyone kind of knows that the Black Lives Matter movement uh, often causes some people to get a little defensive. And we hear responses, you know, that are like, it's more appropriate to say all lives matter. Janine, I want to hear from you, like, what do you have to say to those who might respond in that way? Like, what does Black Lives Matter really mean to you? It means a lot to me. Um, I consider it to be like a life or death issue. And so that's where I always challenge people to go, especially those who feel the urge to retort back with the All Lives Matter chant. So if all lives matter, then um, by that, that property, all Black lives matter too. All Black lives matter, all white lives matter, all everybody's life matters, right? But specifically, I think that just the way that I've gone in my life, it matters how you treat the person who has the least ability to to overcome the majority opinion. And so that's why I feel like Black Lives Matter is more specific and um, necessary right now to lift up. A lot of people like to use that kind of example of, I judge my date, how they treat the waiter, right? And Mm. so I think of that kind of ideology or way of treating people. So how do you treat the lowest person or how do you treat the person who's had the most complex struggle within American history and that's where I say that black people are because what we do affects what all other minorities 
do, how they're treated within our government, within our local society. Um, and a lot of the country, as we know from our own history, was built off of what we did in our first um, in our first coming over to the United States. So I think that at this point in time, when we say Black Lives Matter, oftentimes it's connected with a lot of uh, in the media with what's going on with police brutality. But it, I think what you said was really hit it on the head is that it's systemic. It's bigger than that as well. It's just that right now that's what's in our face, and and I think that it's it's a challenge to find out how to use media well, especially with uh, how our country has gone over the last four years in particular with our, our, our constant arguments about if news is real or fake, right? Mm. And so if that's what's being reported, how do we go with it? You kind of have to work with what you've got. And this is unfortunately what's in front of us, that even in something that should have joined the world together in a struggle, a worldwide pandemic, we still had the same issues within our community. Mm. And so it doesn't matter if things are going great, doesn't matter if things are going badly. We had the most amazing economy over the last 10 years and now we're hitting recession, but we still have the same issue that we've been. And so I think that, especially with the Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter comment that is constantly being circulated, it's, it's, it's more of an effort, I think, to hide behind that status quo that doesn't really exist that's being horribly exposed right now. Mm. So, How do you think we as, especially a church body, I think, how can we connect with people more and help them to really understand that? And so we, we go to the Lutheran church, right? And you grew up going to St. Peter's. Is that right? I've been there since I was 16. Okay. And what, can you kind of describe the makeup of St. Peter's to uh, people that are listening? Sure thing. So St. Peter's is a pretty mixed church. Like um, we always like to say, it's like a little slice of heaven. So it's how heaven's going to look. Um, <laughs> like uh it's mostly caribbean i'll say that caribbean guyanese caribbean from all the different islands that are you know right below the united states most people know where the caribbean is it has a strong history within the latino community mostly dominican and puerto rican and then we have some people who are black american white americans um and anybody else who walks in really but i think like when you listen to like the music and things like that a lot of it you will get that strong afro-caribbean heritage with um with kind of how the how the neighborhood is and then also a lot of how our music is, which I think in multicultural church context, it's a, it's a lot of how church is shaped, it's how the music is and what's presented there. So yeah, yeah. So it's a mixture. I think about this and I think about St. Peter's and I think I've always felt it's such a unique place and especially being a Lutheran church. Uh, I was actually watching a video that you were kind of on a, I don't know if you call it a forum or just a, a few leaders in the Lutheran church were discussing these issues one thing that was brought up is the fact that the Lutheran church is 95% white. That is a lot of white people. And I know I am one of those white people, those German white Lutherans. And St. Peter's is so unique in that it's not that at all. You know, like you said, there were a handful of white people there and four of them were in my family. <laughs> like my sister, my aunt, my cousin, right? Um, Pastor Banky, who is not related <laughs> to me. But then you also mentioned you went to Concordia, Chicago. Can you kind of talk about a little bit? First, I'd love to hear your experience in the early years at St. Peter's. You know, you said you started going there at 16. What was that like? And then how would you compare that to what it was like when you went to a predominantly white college and experienced the fact that this is very different than my church. 
it was culture shock, I guess, in reverse for me. So growing up in New York as a Lutheran, I came to Lutheran church when we were, uh, me and my family, my brother's a Lutheran pastor, so I always say we, but we were 13 years old. Basically, we left our non-denom church and then we walked down the block and the next church we saw was a Lutheran church. And we were like, same color church, same style, let's go in. And that was St. Matthew's and Canarsie. And then after that, I, I came to St. Peter's after some other like issues with that church, right? But both of those churches are similar in their makeup. And so I did not know the Lutheran church was as white as it was until I got to college. I've been to national youth gatherings, which are common in the Lutheran church where you get all the country together. And I thought, oh, okay, the, the 30,000 people who came here, they just happened to be a bunch of white kids because probably like it costs a lot of money to come. I know we fundraise a lot. So I didn't really see the full picture of it until I got to Concordia. Oddly enough, I actually downpaid at a different Concordia, Concordia Seward, which when I visited, they put me with a person who lived on a farm like in real life. And um, the story she told me, <laughs> I was like, I can't be here. <laughs> um, Concordia, which was considered moderate, honestly, oh. believe it or not, moderate among the Concordias, which are typically PWI. In my time there, I, I kind of got to know the other side of Lutheranism, Lutheran culture, and about the different people within it. And I didn't have a bad time. There were, there were a lot of instances where we had to overcome issues of racism, but I didn't feel specifically attacked by any one group. I think it is different, the experience that I had versus other Black students that I know there. I was um, part of BSU, and I obviously I had Black friends at Concordia. When you see another Black person, you kind of do the little nod thing, and you guys all click up at some point, right? My experience was different, I think, because I was Lutheran. I was going there for a, a church work profession, so that made everything different. But within my classes there, there was definitely a lot of pushback with that. I feel like something that happened a lot that I didn't really appreciate was that my faith was challenged or I was always constantly having to validate that, being a Black Lutheran. I'm not from the South, so a lot of Black Lutherans we know are from the South. And so I wasn't in that group. They couldn't really fit me in the traditional, okay, well, are your parents African? I'm like, no, they're from Brooklyn, right? <laughs> and so it's how this happened. And I'm like, don't you, isn't this what you guys wanted to happen? So I remember there are some distinct experiences that were pretty uncomfortable, namely like with tour choir. Uh, so I went to College on a Music Scholarship. It's a fun fact. I'm a good alto. And so that Yeah, helped me beautiful voice. <laughs> so I like singing. I've been singing since third grade. I was in the, the tour choir, right? So that's part of your music scholarship. You have to be in one of the choirs that goes around. And so we would tour anywhere all in the United States. That was my way that I got to see 25 different states, which I don't think I would have done if I didn't do that. But there were more than a few instances. Me and my brother were the only two Black people in the choir. Of course, like the attraction of singing in German or Italian or all these random languages. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even know German. I'm a terrible white German. I think most Lutherans that I met, I took three years of German in high school. So I was like, okay, well, I'm in this, you know? But it was constantly being challenged and that disappointed me. I would be asked way more often than my peers, church after church, where you're asked at the altar uh, if you're Lutheran. Which has to do with the way that Lutherans distribute communion. Part of like the theology is that you usually have to be Lutheran to take communion at a Lutheran church. And so when we have tour choirs, we'd always have to go to church on Sunday if, if the, the tour was over a Sunday. And so you'd have this group of about 35 kids um, all singing together all week. We have fun on the bus, that whole thing. And then it comes Sunday and we all got to go to church. And then, uh, you know, it comes time for communion, you all walk up. And, and I, I would find time and time again, me and my brother would be asked, all these questions about if we're Lutheran or not, which would be crazy because the night before we were singing German in this random choir yeah. from the Midwest here to sing for you guys. And why would I be here if I wasn't? Mm -hmm. And then 
question not asked to all the 35 other people in this choir. Right, right. Me at the altar. They have to stop him at the altar. And so that was annoying because you can read my major in the, in the booklet. <laughs> that was one. There were also just like assumptions around campus of who you're related to, which I guess uh, I kind of reverse did that with you guys at St. Peter's. But, um, <laughs> is this person your brother? Is this person your brother? I'm like, no, I have one brother. <laughs> this is him. All these other black people are not related. To <laughs> We're me. not all the same. We are not all related. So that was probably, for me, I wouldn't say it's the, the most hurtful experience, but that's one of the ones I feel, I guess, comfortable sharing is that that validation check, I think is one that, a lot of black people deal with, whether it's in your tour choir at, at college or anywhere else. It's, do you really live in this neighborhood? Is this really your car? Are you really Lutheran? Do you really believe this? And it, I just think that that constant need to prove when you're in a different context, in, a, in a, what's supposed to be a multicultural context, um, is really difficult because it's a place where you expect to feel welcomed and then you are challenged once again with this, where's, where's your card? Where, where's your paperwork? Yeah, and what does, I mean, how does that affect you from an emotional standpoint? Because it's not just a single instance. It's not just something that happens when I go to this place. It's, it's all the time. It's across your life. And I can imagine, I can only imagine that that would really affect you a lot. And how, like, how do you cope with that? How do you deal with that in your daily life? You know, I see you, you're a very strong woman. And, and even all of this that you go through, it's always impressive to me that someone that goes through things like that is still able to go back to the church and sometimes this institution that makes you feel very unwelcome you still go back because like of what it's really supposed to be about right but can can you kind of talk to me about how you do that how you really feel like I think knowing the truth helps right and so specifically within the context of Christianity there's certain things I believe about about God and his love that no church is ever going to change that. No interaction that I have with a person is ever going to change that. And so that's what, that's what I feel like my role as a church leader is, is to challenge that for others who would not act on that. I think we need to act on what we say that we believe, which is a challenge for a lot of people, but especially um, emotionally, uh, the way that it affects is, is just, for me, it's come out on the other side. And I know it affects everyone differently, but me specifically is, is like the overcompensation. I think I deal with that a lot. And so um, you'll overcompensate <laughs> with, with titles or with degrees or with what you know about a subject just because you are kind of anticipating being challenged on whatever it is that you say or where you are. That's happened a lot to me, as you know, and you've experienced yourself, I know, um, with gentrification in New York, right? So I've moved back to a neighborhood that my mom grew up in, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which everybody knows now, hipster nation. Grew up in Williamsburg, that's not what it was. And so now in, in this neighborhood where I'm familiar with, of you know, she would take us back over here, and my aunts and cousins and everybody from this area, and I'm here now, and people are telling me how to stand online in a corner store, and they didn't even know what a corner store was until they moved here three years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That constant um, validation challenge, it's, it's emotionally draining. Um, and I think that's what causes a lot of people to, quote unquote, pop off. So a lot of times you see somebody and, uh, you know, maybe they yell at you and you say, whoa, 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 I didn't do anything to you. And it's just like, I think it's so many times of that happening that it erupts. And obviously, I think that that's what happened with the George Floyd killing. It's, it's an eruption. And so that happens on a micro level within Black people as well. And definitely in my own life. You know, you get mad at yourself after because you're like, you know what? That lady didn't do anything to me. 
But it's like all the other ladies who did those things to me. <laughs> right. I try to balance it. Yeah, I think that that, that, that slow boiling annoyance, it's just with the, with the constant validation, with the constant double checking of if you're supposed to be in this class, if you're supposed to be at this altar, if you're supposed to, it's, it's annoying. Yeah, I imagine that would take a toll on a person. So now, Janine, being a leader in the church and being a Black female leader in the church, how do you feel that you're able to kind of use that role to help the church better, like better itself in the way that it handles these things? Like what has been your experience at St. Peter's and maybe even in other places in general? I think St. Peter's is, again, it's a unique place. It's, it's very welcoming. They're, they're right on, on task and in step with what should be happening and should maybe be used as a model for the larger community. And I think that that's, um, that's part of the issue is that when something is in, the, in a multicultural context, an urban context, it's already seen as a, a minority. And so how can that be a model for everyone else when you're a minority? And so I think that that needs to be adjusted on like a wide, probably uh, outside my pay grade level, but how do you get there, right? And so um, that's where I've used my, my time and my, my talents to affect the change that I can in the areas that I can. So I, I you know, I serve as an adjunct professor at Concordia, New York, that's helpful, um, teaching the next generation, right? I served as a high school teacher in Martin Luther in Queens as well. It's, you kind of try to instill it in the next generation and help people to understand and see um, everyone in different contexts. I think that that's really helpful. And using, and, and like, I, I, I think it's a cliche of, oh, use the talents that you have to get what, whatever you can do, right? But I think that when you can, like, zone in on what your talent is, that's what really serves the world. So I know that for me, that's through a lot of writing, not necessarily policy writing, though that's what I went to school for. But right now it's, um, it's writing diverse, and material that is diverse and inclusive. And that's for our entire church body. And using that leverage that you have of being in the small corner of the world that operates in this way, helping people to understand that it, it doesn't have to be a small corner of the world. We're so quick to go out to another country to experience something that's in our backyard, at mm. least urban context that people find themselves in. And if you don't find yourself in an urban context, it's still closer than 7,000 miles away. <laughs> so I always found that to be very surprising. And um, that, that's what I try to do. And, and be that voice. Um, I'm very happy that our church is, is very welcoming and accepting of that. I know that on a wider level, there are some people within, the, within our, our church body who are trying to get to that level. And so I'm excited by that. Um, I'm still disappointed by some of the things that are going on. But I think challenging people on a human level, on a very, let's put meat and bones to this instead of the skeleton that you're hiding in your closet, is very important to do. Because a lot of people talk a lot of stuff online. When you see them in person, it's not the same. And I've yeah. experienced that with issues such as the one that we're doing with now and others. And so once you're in their face, and not in a confrontational way, right? <laughs> but you're like, hey, I'm a human being. Now I'm in your DM. Or I'm a human being. Now we're at this event and here I am. It, the conversation gets very different. And so I think that the opposite of racism is solidarity in the way that we solve it is through humanizing others. I think that the mm. distance we have within our country creates this opportunity to unrealistically dehumanize others. And it's not that you're doing it directly. It's just, if I don't know anyone who lives in insert state here, it's very easy for me to construct this idea about them in my head that may or may not be true. And that's what I, that's what I learned in college. Reverse the other way. So many New Yorkers 
we have everything here. Why do I need to go anywhere else? But me going to the Midwest helped me to see how people in the middle of the country think, right? And now the way I talk, the way I act, the way I interact is with that knowledge. And so it can go the other way too. But I think so often for minorities, it's one way. We have to learn how to be in this world. Nobody has to learn how to be in the other world. And there needs mm. to be a two-way street. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great point. It's interesting you bring that up because I think about, I think about myself because I grew up in the Midwest, right? And so that's everything that I know and was taught growing up. And I moved to New York after college. And I, I have to say that was the, the first real, real look at a lot of different cultures, a lot of different people. I mean, we all know New York is a melting pot, right? And I, I think it was good to be able to open my eyes to people that might have different beliefs that, than I do and come from a, a different place. You don't always have to agree on things, but I think what's so important is at least taking the step to get to know other people and try to understand where they're coming from. As you're saying, it goes both ways. It's like, I think a lot of times white people are just like, well, you guys should know that this is how things are done and like get on board. This is normal. And I always, I'm quick. And now I started saying in the last year, like that, that's white culture. And then they're all different cultures and we respect all of them. But I was like, that is not, normal it is white culture and that's fine and you you know you guys are going to arrive early to the party and you got to be ready when you're there (laughs) (laughs) part of the culture right (laughs) part of the culture listen but if if they arrive early just put them to work make them do something that's what's happened that's how i've learned to adjust so i'm just like I recognize that I had that blind spot within myself because I think so many of these conversations, at least the ones that I've been watching about you know, racism in the United States and where it is now and where it can be or won't be. It's just like, well, go out and meet somebody who's different than you. And I think that we both, we all need to do those things. We as you know, minorities, as black people need to do those things. And then on the other side as well. There are a lot of people who are doing that, but then I think like what happens after the college experience, like, once everybody's involved in the lives that they lead and what they consider to be the norm again, what happens now? No? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think a big thing too is, is sometimes challenging your own upbringing in a sense. I think about some of the things that I learned growing up and, and not to say that they were wrong, but it was more of the sense that there are a lot of other people that were not taught the same thing. And so I have to understand where they're coming from and figure out how do we live together in harmony based on what I know to be true and what they know to be true. You can't just be like, this is the way, because it's my way. It's what I taught. Like, why would, why would your way make more sense than mine? You know? And I I think it's, it sometimes can be reversing. I hate to use the word, but it's like reversing years of brainwashing essentially. And I don't think it's intentional, but it exists. It's what we know. And so it's what we teach. Uh, and so until you can really understand differently, you're going to continue down that road, I think. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it involves like, um, try to view your, your activities, your behaviors as a part of your culture, rather than the norm. I think the assumption is that we're like, well, this is what people do. Because this is what I do, what everybody in my family, everybody I know does, where I grew up, this is how they do. But you need to realize like, okay, there might be something else out there that exists. It's not better or worse, but there might be something else out there that exists that's different and 
can frame how all of the things that you believe would be different if you grew up in that context. Yep, exactly. I agree with you. One thing I wanted to ask you too, in terms of what the church can do better. I know something that you had said in the video I watched of you was there is more of a need for diversification in the church as we kind of spoke about this. I'm speaking more of the Lutheran church, but I do think the church in general, maybe a little bit like there's not a lot of diversity and it's very segregated. If you're going to church, you're likely going to a predominantly white congregation or predominantly black congregation. This is my thoughts on it. I don't know if I don't have any stats <laughs> to back that up. That's how I've it. It's like it's similar with similar people of your similar culture. Unless you're going to a very large church. And I find that people who are like, well, my church is everyone in it. Like, how big is your church? <laughs> yeah. People. <laughs> and it's, it's popping this thing on the block, right? Um, but I think when we have those smaller communities, which I think a lot of long-time, lifelong churchgoers, will, you would find them in a smaller church community, maybe 500 or less, right? You do see that homogeneity. And, and how do we address that, I guess, is your question? It's, it's hard because I think that so many times ministry can be siloed. So it's like, okay, this week or this year, we're supporting a ministry in this country or a missionary in this country, or we're reaching out to this group of people. And I think that what is more necessary is to look at shared interests and then build it from there. And so when we think of something very simple or very popular as um, like what, what you guys did with St. Peter's, you and um, Katie, your sister, right? With the basketball ministry. Who likes basketball? Lots of people like basketball, right? And so instead of thinking of that as only a youth ministry, which we managed to do it as youth and adults, don't think of it as only for one group of people. Maybe you need a 40 and over league for people whose knees hurt. <laughs> or, um, or just for Pastor Banky himself. <laughs> just for Pastor Banky to prove that he still got it, right? Kind of like unite on the interest and make the interest the key instead of we need more blank people because i think when you go after it like that it becomes shark like capitalist and strange <laughs> so rather than saying we need more x people it's just like who can we find in this community who also likes the shared interest that we already have and whether it has i think sports is a great equalizer that's why i bring it up i think music is another one um how can we include more music hymns background that matches up with what we say we believe but it's a different kind of song like there's nothing wrong with that and I think that going after those shared interests rather than going after, well, we need by this time next year to be 25% African-American or Black. That's just the wrong way about it. We've got to go after what do we, what do we share and um, go from there. And I think that there's a lot of things that we share in common that we find when, when we do that, when we stretch ourselves to that level, right? So why was I in that, in that church at that altar? Because I like singing and there's other people who like singing, <laughs> right? And so that was the, the shared experience. And it helped to shape a lot of my experiences, a lot of my friends from college. So I think that there's definitely ways that we could be better about that. So one of them is going after shared experience rather than a specific population group. I think that you always run into a danger when you do the specific population group, right? Um, I think another one is learning about other people on purpose. Um, so like increasing your own cultural competency, so like learning about the culture of your friends. <laughs> I think that's, that's always really interesting. I, I've learned a lot from, um, like, I would say, like, Asian friends that I have, because I didn't, I, I've always had, like, 
a, a lower number. And it's not on purpose, like I wasn't trying, but it's just like the context in the schools that I grew up in. But for the people that I do know, I ask them questions about it. And of course, we can't have one person speak for their entire race or their entire group. Right. But you can learn by doing the things that they do, how they do it, and not trying to tell them how they should do it. And so that's important too. And then the, like, um, being honest about, about uh, things that are simple, I think is another big one. And that's a really scary one because it's hard for us to admit where we're wrong and where we have wronged others or where some of the responsibility of where others in the past we have carried on, right? And so being what they would call like repentant about things that you've done in the past or things that your ancestors have done in the past that still affect people who are here now. Mm. An apology is a great first step. <laughs> I'm thinking about one of the things that I saw this week with like kind of responses on one of our websites, one of our educator websites about what, what schools can do. And so they had three responses, but the one that was from our Black Clergy Caucus had a parenthesis on it of unofficial opinion, not doctrinally reviewed. And so it's like- Wow, wow. The title? You could put an asterisk even, like the, the blatant, I don't think it was meant like, let's offend Black people right now, but it's just like when a newcomer comes to your site and sees that, why can't you put that on the bottom of a footnote? Why can't you not put that at all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that, just the way that, the way that we frame things. It's a long journey. And so what I said and what I think for moving forward is even if this is a trend in our social context, right? We love a trend. It doesn't have to be a trend in the church because the church has not been about trends for a long time. They love holding on to things of old. So yeah. <laughs> that's for sure one of those things of old that just becomes a part of who we are and what we do and what we dump home for the, till the end of time, right? Yeah. Um, I would challenge that too. Don't okay. let it be a trick. That's the yeah. that's the I have for our society. Because I'm like, once phase four comes, will still will people still care about this? Mm. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is just your education in general. And can you kind of talk a little bit about what your education was like in terms of history, like I look back and I'm like, everything that I learned was very white-sided history, right? And always glorifying that white side. And in recent days, I've been reading so many things that I have never, like I had no idea about, right? Like one thing I was reading about was Black Wall Street and had not even known that that was a thing. And so there's so much Black history out there and just history that I think we're being taught on one side. I, I want to know, if, what did you, is that the same experience that you had growing up? And even in terms of the church and like leadership roles, like talk to me about that. Well, I think like the first one with, with education is, is key. I switched schools a lot. My brother and I switched schools a lot. The only school I went to for four years straight was high school. My mom and my dad were always very particular about that being a part of our education. And so that's why we switched so much. And it's, it, they did what they had to do to kind of help ingrain that. Um, and then when I say what they had to do, it's having that full knowledge of what's going on in history. So anytime they sensed that a teacher or school administration was not presenting the full story, then we'd see a switch, right? Mm. And so it's growing up because, you know, obviously there's friends involved and the teacher that you liked, but you didn't know how she really was. We had some good schools that included it as part of history. I'll say that. Some key ones that I remember, I went to um, St. John the Evangelist, which is in Williamsburg. It's closed now. They had some excellent, we had, a, I had a, a 
eighth grade teacher who was actually, she was like a, like a freedom fighter. And so she was, she was a white woman, but she was very like woke, as you would say. And she, she taught us a lot all the time. And then I had some schools growing up where they would incorporate that not only for just February, which is the shortest month of the year, which happens to be Black History Month, mm-hmm. but as part of history. I think that, that you said that even in kind of like your question of, it's not Black history, it's history. It's the history of America. It's the history of the world. Right. And so why are we limited to a month that makes no sense? (laughs) So I think including it in every level, but that has to do with who writes the textbooks. Right. So history is written winners. And so how do you frame yourself to be like a nice looking winner? That's where, again, that honesty comes in. But growing up, I think it, it mattered really the teacher that you had. There is a question going around on social media of like, when in your life did you have your first black teacher? Right. Or first black admin. And so me, for me, it was, it was when I was younger and I didn't realize until I grew up and got out in life and everything, how much, how many other of my black brothers and sisters didn't know about our history because of just, I guess, the leadership within their school. So I feel very blessed that I went to schools where we celebrated it. You yeah. know, we celebrated we memorized Langston Hughes poems and national anthems that, that I didn't know at the time. I'm like, this is annoying. I don't want to memorize stuff. But now I'm like, wow. Nobody else knows this poem. <laughs> you That's know? amazing. Now that you say that, though, I'm thinking back on my education. I don't think I had one black teacher growing up. Not a oh. single one. I don't even think I had a black professor in college. Yeah, in college, I, I don't. No, I can't remember. No. But growing I up, I had, wow. grade was my first. And I went to school that had a black principal. That was cool. I think it's helpful to teach our, the next generation their history as not just negative. I think something that we always see, which is where that view of self comes in very early, especially with younger, young black children. It's like the first time you encounter us in a history book is always slavery. And it's just like, why does this have to be the first thing? Um, and, yeah. and how and the pictures that are given, is, it, it's hurtful, right? The things that you see and the way that people discount it. And so that's something else that I wanted to mention. It's just like, I've seen you reposting and many other different friends, but I always also see people on the other side kind of discounting what's happening. When we look at Ruby Bridges, who was to integrate the first white school, she's still alive. She, she was a kid who remembers that. I think about stories my dad told me. I was having a conversation with him yesterday. He's told us this story many times. It dictated the way that we took the bus as teenagers and junior high schoolers, because he said, don't go to that neighborhood. I used to get chased with sticks out of that neighborhood. And so he is 60. So there's all these people who exist in our society walking about who remember these times. And I think so many people want to believe that it's so long ago that nobody else can remember that. And it's like, no, these are the stories our parents told us growing up. These are the things that got people in the 80s to try and forget their pain with the crack epidemic, right? And so I think like all of these things are connected and it's very necessary of the the teachers of the fall i know everybody's going to be including this within their um within their course descriptions and things like that but again don't let it be a trend and why wasn't it a part of it before like who do you think you are to leave out a whole part of history yeah right yeah well and i think that is i think what you're saying right now is also kind of a response to my question earlier on what black lives matter or what Black Lives Matter movement means to you, but also like why it is so important. Like we do need it because of things like this. We think about it and we're like, yeah, why hasn't it been there all along? The fact of the matter is it hasn't. And we have such a good opportunity to change that. And I think we have to continue 
to push forward and not let up because this is such an important thing. People need to be better educated on these things. Be educated on things that are triumphs rather than things that are just troubles. Even if you think of the most famous black person you know, most people probably Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, and it's all born on struggle. And it's like, who's a famous person that you know who didn't go through all this straight garbage in their life? And it's harder to name. So I think that helping the next generation to see themselves, I think it's gonna, it's, it, it's so necessary. I, I just think of everything that the, the kids have gone through these last couple of months and what they'll go through in the fall. And, my, and I don't want anybody to grow up with such a negative image of self just because it's been made into a political issue instead of life or death issue. So I'm gonna leave you with one more question. Two questions, but all in the same thing. First of all, do you think white privilege exists? Yes, yes. Now, how would you, in the most simple way, describe white privilege to someone who doesn't believe it exists? That's so hard. <laughs> who doesn't believe it exists? I don't, I don't know. And those are the people, honestly, that I have the hardest time talking with. Because... I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss for words. I, I think that even not believing it exists is white privilege in and of itself. It's because that what I talked about earlier, where viewing your life as a cultural context rather than the norm is, I guess, the, the uh, cognitive dissonance that people who don't think that exists have, right? They think that this is normal. People are nice all the time. Nobody asks you questions. You don't need to carry your ID around. It doesn't matter what you wear. Those are all privileges. But I think it's very hard for a person who doesn't think it exists. I, I, I'd say that they're so, they have no self-awareness. It's very hard to talk to those people, to be in a relationship with those people. And it stretches across things beyond race, right? I don't know. I'm sorry. I feel like that's a bad answer. <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think it's the perfect answer. It's your experience. It's your perspective. And I think you're right. I think that's, like you just said, I don't worry about those things. And... The fact that I don't have to is a privilege. And the problem is it, it shouldn't be a privilege, right? Like every human being should be able to live like that. And that is what is so frustrating is that white privilege should just be <laughs> what everybody experiences in life. Right. Because I think that so many times, especially for everybody, I think here in 2020 is dealing with the, a lot of black people educated Black people, people who have lived with everyone else or done the right thing, so to speak, right? You think that that's going to get you somewhere and then you, you live this year and you find out that it's not. Everything that you thought was like, okay, well, you know what? That's everybody else. That's not going to be me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Better myself. I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to do this. And you find that, nope, you know, it still doesn't matter as much as this other thing. And so it's not, it's not something that I'm trying to believe in my heart because I feel like it does, it gets you down and it gets you in a dark place. But it is something that we need to protect as, as we talk about it. When we talk about Black Lives Matter and what it means specifically to Black people, what it means to our country and what the rest of the world has seen it mean, it is, once it's over, we're still going to be this. We didn't choose to be this, but we're still going to be this. We're still going to live with this. And I feel like in the last two, three weeks, it's been more eyes on me than before with all that's going on just because of, of these statements, you know? And it's just, it's something that I don't want to be a trend and something that I want to be a part of helping the solution to actually come to pass. I think that we start with educating people who are in the middle. Honestly, I do not start with the person all the way over here. 
I think that the same thing as like, if you want to compare it with church with outreach, it's the same thing I would compare with this. You start with the person I think who's in the middle, who's on the fence, who um, can listen and, and educate them toward that. And I think it, I don't believe in the, in the ripple effect, but I think that you start there and you branch out accordingly. Because if, if you can't get the person in the middle, how in the world do you expect to get the person who says white privilege doesn't exist? You know? And yeah. so that's the strategy I would take. I'm not worried about convincing Donald Trump that Black Lives Matter. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think he's a lost cause, unfortunately. So I guess with the question that you asked, I, I would consider that person a bit of a lost cause at this point in history. And I'm looking at the people who are in the middle. I love yeah. that. I think that's really great. And I want to end on that because I think that's a really good way to end. Janine, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your perspective on things and your experience. I, I really appreciate it. I hope the listeners appreciate it. Yeah, so. thanks for asking me and thanks for having me. And I love the podcast. I am a listener from day one. So Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm a listener since day one and I'm really looking forward of all that is to come. And I think that spaces just like this, talking to your friends who are of different cultures or backgrounds than you is the place to start. And then you go further, you go further, you go further, you go further. That's what it takes. And so for people who are out there questioning like, well, what can I do to change? Start with a Netflix documentary. They are literally at the top of the Netflix documentaries right now. Yes. Who you know in your life who's different and how you can find a shared interest to begin spending time with that person. Don't try and get to know someone because they're Black. Get to know them because you both like this or that, right? You guys work at the same place, so obviously you have something in common. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Yes. Yeah. It's great advice. Um, is there anything you would like to plug? I know you have your own podcast. Are you still doing that? Ah, I am not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, there's, there's nothing going on. I'm a very creative person. I'm all over the place. I call myself Janine of all trades. So right now I'm just concentrating on, like I said, I, I'm using my talent of writing on diverse and um, in inclusion and diversity for materials for people who had previously not seen that stuff. Yeah. And so that's like my main focus right now. I think it's going to be important. I think it's going to build the future. And so that's what I'm concentrating on. So yeah. I love that. Can you tell anybody that might be interested? So I've been streaming St. Peter's churches throughout this quarantine, which has been wonderful to be back at St. Peter's. Um, can you give people the information for that? If they have any interest in checking out uh, church services or sermons or all you guys have to offer. Also, St. Peter's, Brooklyn. We are the largest Lutheran church in Brooklyn. And uh, we stream on Wednesdays, twice on Wednesdays. So I do a spiritual health checkup, which is just basically for anybody who is um, God conscious, I say. You probably enjoy it. We're just checking in on how everyone's doing and we have a brief discussion. Then we have prayer and praise on Wednesdays. So if you like a shorter service, Wednesday night is your place to be. And then Sundays we have our full church service at 10 a.m. And all of those can be found on Facebook at St. Peter's, Brooklyn. Um, and we also have a website, St. Peter's, Brooklyn. So check us out, join us, and all are welcome. For real, yes. for real. All are welcome. <laughs> for real, for real. Even the two tall white women. <laughs> we'll sit in the front. <laughs> <laughs> I love the front row. Only at St. Peter's, though. I don't sit in the front row anywhere else, which is really funny. Again, Janine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Everyone else, thank you for listening. I hope you got something out of this. 
If you would like, please follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Lizzie Beck, L-I-Z-Z-I-E-B-O-E-C-K. Give this podcast a subscribe and like it, review it. Give me a five. If you have anything less than a five to say, just don't listen anymore. Don't give me poor ratings, people, okay? Janine, uh, would you like to give out your social media handles if anyone cares to follow you? Yeah, on, um, on Instagram, I'm Janine Ebo, J-A-N-I-N-I-B-O. That's my nickname. If you have questions about stuff, you can ask me. I'm one of those people. Like, if you have questions, you can ask me. I tell my students the same thing. Text me in the middle of the night. I won't answer you in the middle of the night, but I'll answer your question. Um, and then on Facebook, I am uh, I'm hidden. But you can mess me on Instagram. Janine Ebo. Boom. Okay. And if you need help, let me know, and I'll just direct you to her pages. Again, thanks all for listening, and we'll see you next time. La 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 la